Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason, or as you know me as Jay Mace, and I have a special edition of Beyond the Album Cover. Today, I have Dr. Mark Mason, professor at Fordham University, knowledgeable of all things in regards to race, politics, music, and just a jack of all trades. Dr. Mason, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I'm very glad to be here. It's an exciting time in American history, and uh, I look forward to our discussion. All right, and if you would, Dr. Dr. Nathan, please give a background about how you came into academia and teaching at Fordham. Okay, so I grew up in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn in the 1950s. It was a mostly Jewish and Italian neighborhood with a handful of black families. You know, in my time, sports and rock and roll were the formative influences among my generation of young people. And if you look at it historically, I was part of the first generation of white American youth who had black heroes. It wasn't the time where there was a high level of like race consciousness in discussion. It was the beginning of the civil rights movement, but mainly people just didn't talk about race. But, you know, I grew up with Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and Don Newcomb. I grew up with Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Little Anthony and the Imperials, with Elgin Baylor and Bill Russell. So I was this this kid, I had the school teacher parents, it was a little bit nerdy, but my way of acceptance was sports and rock and roll, so those figures sort of shaped my game, and uh, I danced and tried to sing to those creators of the doo-wop sound, which was the way rock and roll came into New York City. So I grew up in that sort of environment, and then you ended up with some level of racial tension entering the neighborhood. I was grew up in Crown Heights, just south of Bed-Stuy. There was some tension at the schools, and this is in the early 60s, and I started getting involved in the civil rights movement through a high school chapter of CORE. My parents objected to it. I went anyway. So I had this sort of visceral identification. I was a white Jewish kid with a visceral identification with black culture, which I didn't even understand at the time. You know, that was the interesting thing. It was there, but there was no language to describe it. It was sort of a... And then when the civil rights movement came, I began to become active in it. And then I graduated from high school. It was Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn and went to Columbia. And at Columbia, I was at first more of an athlete than anything else. I ended up becoming captain of the tennis team, joined a fraternity. The academics didn't come that easily. But then the civil rights movement started reaching a kind of high pitch with 1963 with the March and Washington movement. And two things really impelled me to start not only, you know, becoming an activist, but also to start doing some research on race in American history. The first was reading James Baldwin's novel, Another Country, and the second was hearing Dr. King's speech on television at the March in Washington. The interesting thing about James Baldwin's novel was that I grew up with black friends and teammates, but we all pretended we were all the same because that was the discourse of the time. And here is James Baldwin explaining with great eloquence that being black in America was a huge burden, you know, that you had to face all kinds of things. And here I was, I never realized that. It was like something went off in my head. Okay, you know, there's something you didn't realize that's important. And then, you know, watching the Birmingham protests 
and black people being hit, you know, with hoses and police dogs, and then hearing Dr. King's speech, I had to get involved. So a sophomore year, I joined the chapter of Congress of Racial Equality at Columbia, and I also, when I have a chance to do research papers, for courses, I start doing them on African-American history and race in American history. And I start realizing, you know, this is something really important to do. Now, at my school at Columbia, there were no black professors. There were no books by black authors. So this was something I had to pursue sort of on my own, but with the encouragement of some of my professors. So by the time I was entering my senior year at Columbia, I was starting to think, you know, wow, I think I want to become a historian. And I want to study race in America, and I want to use what I learned to support the civil rights movement. So, and it all looked like, you know, pretty much all white world. And people are sort of encouraging me to go in this direction, liberal professors. But I don't have a single black professor, and there's no black person who's like in my inner circle. So, you know, but everybody's encouraging me. I'm encouraged to apply for fellowships. I'm starting to do well in my papers. So it all seems very smooth. Then at a basketball team party, fall of my senior year, and the basketball team was the only mixed-race team at Columbia. I was the captain of the tennis team, but I had friends in the basketball team. So I went to this party, and I meet this young black woman, and we start dating, and I fall head over heels in love. And it was an experience which changed me forever because, one, I had to confront my own internalized racism to be an, a good partner in this relationship. But then when I told my parents about her, they basically said they would want nothing to do with her and kind of kicked me out of my own family. And then her family, an extended family, was part of it in Georgia, part of New York, like basically adopted me. And this is all happening in my senior year when I'm applying for all these fellowships and getting them. So I have two worlds, this world where, you know, I'm in academia, and then there's this world where I'm part of this working class extended black family. But so that's how I enter graduate school. I get a full fellowship to go to Columbia Grad School and decide I'm going to become a historian and I'm going to write about race in America. And in between that, we have the Columbia strike, the black power movement, SDS, the rise of black studies, and I'm in the middle of a lot of these things. I get arrested a couple of times in protests. I start writing position papers for SDS on race, and there's a lot of tension to be in a multiracial relationship because of the black power movement, and my girlfriend is under a lot of pressure for having a white boyfriend, even a white boyfriend who was, you know, politically conscious. So it's very intense experience, but it was exciting because you felt at that time that young people were going to make history. It was this incredible feeling. You know, we took over buildings, we stopped the construction of a gym, we got rid of ROTC and military research, we created at probably 300 universities, black studies programs, we were reinventing, you know, there was a gay liberation movement that was unbelievably exciting, a women's liberation movement. It was like we were reinventing ourselves and reinventing American society. And I was in the middle of all of it. It was scary, but it was unbelievably exciting. So 1970 spring, 
my fellowship money runs out and I have to get a job. So I apply to every American history job in the New York metropolitan area, you know, for introductory positions teaching American history or Western Sith. Then I'm playing basketball in Riverside Park and this Irish kid I had taken under my wing who had ended up going to Fordham said, you know, I'm taking a black studies course at Fordham and the, my professor said they need another professor. Why don't you apply? So in a lark, almost because I didn't really think I'd get it, I said, first of all, I am white and if that disqualifies me for this position, I understand. But if not, this is what I've studied. This is what I've taught. And to my shock, I get called in for an interview and they ask me, what do you want to teach? And I make up three courses on the spot. And they write me, a, you know, do you want the job? So I had this experience. What do I do? Do I teach introductory American history in Western Civ, where everybody, my colleagues are all going to be crew-cut white men who think I'm crazy? Or do I take a chance and teach in a black studies program as a white professor who's going to catch a certain amount of hell, but where I can teach what I really care about. So I decided to take the job at Fordham, and the rest is history because I've been there ever since, and this is going to be my 50th year teaching. Amazing. Just to hear your story and how your life intersected all of the big moments in history with the various movements going on, it's an amazing story. I grew up in northeastern North Carolina, about 45, 50 minutes from Nat Turner's Rebellion in Virginia, and wow. a lot of people had the misconception that the North was it wasn't as racist as the South, but it wasn't as directly in your face like it was down South. Right, yeah, and that's what I discovered, that if you scratch Northern liberals, they had this profound fear of and contempt for black people. And I ran right into the middle of it, and I refused to accept it. I was going to challenge this. I was going to expose it, and I was going to try to change it. You know, I had a lot of self-confidence in part because I was a successful athlete. And, you know, that was my way of connecting to people. And it was also, in some ways, one of my ways of connecting to African-American men through sports. When I was a junior in high school, my partner and I, Fred Lawrence, who was black, won the New York City High School Doubles Championship. And at Columbia, you know, I used to work out and play with the guys in the basketball team all the time. I wasn't quite good enough to play varsity, but I was good enough to play schoolyard ball with almost anybody. So, you know, it was, okay, I'm going to try to make this connection and live sort of in, I called it in the interracial DMZ. I was going to be in between the black and white community and see if I could make that work for me. And it's been tense, but it's been a hell of a ride because when you're in that position, you learn an incredible amount. And so I started teaching at Fordham in the Institute of Afro-American Studies in the fall of 1970. My two big classes were called the History of American Racism and the History of Black Protest. At that time, there was a very active black student movement at Fordham, and there was also an active SDS anti-war chapter, and a lot of the people who took my courses were involved in those protest movements, though there were a certain number of black students who felt that, you know, a white person shouldn't be teaching. And I understood and respected this, but, you know, on the other hand, this was my life, and I wasn't someone who was just going to walk away 
away if a few students challenged me, especially since I was starting to get a constituency among other black students and also because there were black professors in my department who I became friends with. So it was exciting, it was tense, and I loved the excitement of teaching about race in America was at a time when people were seizing buildings, marching in the streets, rebelling. It was an amazing life. And I've been doing it ever since, and I'm 74 years old, and I still love the excitement of the classroom. Right. There's nothing like being in the classroom teaching students. I was a former educator myself, taught special education in middle and elementary school for three years. So I understand the yeah. feeling. Yeah. I say I have two addictions, sports and teaching. And like in the pandemic, when I had to stop teaching live and I couldn't play or watch sports, it was depressing for me. I had two months where, you know, the two things that really drive me weren't there. But, you know, I kept doing research on race in America. I kept being involved in community organizing and uh, social justice uh, work globally, the anti-apartheid movement. Also ended up writing seven books over the course of my career. And also, and this is fascinating, I became immersed in teaching about the history of popular music. And I ended up becoming somebody teaching a course called From Rock and Roll to Hip Hop. I started teaching it in 2002, and I've been teaching it ever since, and it's my most popular course, and it was written up in the New York Post as one of the most popular courses in New York City. So, you know, there's the interesting question. I grew up with rock and roll. In the 60s, the music I loved was soul and funk. You know, in the 70s, you know, I loved the Pointer Sisters. I loved Parliament Funkadelic. I love James Brown. And I didn't realize that hip-hop was going to be important even when I was surrounded by it in the 70s in the Bronx. You know, it was not the music that I connected to. You know, Michael Jackson, Prince, the Pointer Sisters, hell yeah. But with the exception of maybe a, a political song like The Message, I didn't connect to hip-hop as a music that I would identify with. But that changed when I got involved in coaching baseball and basketball in Brooklyn. And so, again, let's here we go back to sports. Both of my children ended up becoming star athletes. My daughter Sarah, born in 1977, and my son Eric, born in 1981. Both ended up becoming Division One athlete. My daughter played college tennis. My son played college baseball. And both of them grew up playing, you know, baseball and basketball in rec leagues in Brooklyn in the neighborhood where we lived in Park Slope. And I coached them because as a college professor, I had time. Now, my son, when he became about 12 or 13, was one of the better basketball and baseball players in our community. So we ended up on traveling teams. And the basketball teams traveled around Staten Island, Brooklyn, and Queens. And the baseball teams went up and down the East Coast. And my son and his friends, who were probably about half black and Latino, half white, were complete hip-hop heads. So imagine, I'm driving the car, you know, or the van, you know, either around the city or up and down the East Coast, and I'm putting on Aretha Franklin, The Doors, James Brown, Smokey and the Miracles. And the kids are saying, Mark, you know, they didn't call me Dr. Nason. Mark, you know, come on, man. You know, your music is cool, but can we put on our music? We want equal time for our music. And I said, I don't like it. And they said, but, okay, why don't you give it a try? So this is the early 
90s, you know, that this is coming to a head. And they put on this song by Wu-Tang, Cream, Cash Rules Everything Around Me, Cream. And I realized that that song captured what was going on in New York during the time of the crack epidemic better than anything I had ever heard. And so I started listening to the stuff that they were putting there. And you have DMX, Tupac, Nas, then Jay-Z and Biggie. And I'm realizing that this music is the soundtrack for what young people in the city's hardest hit neighborhoods were living. And if I wanted to understand the young people I was coaching, if I wanted to understand what was really going in New York, I had to immerse myself in this music. So I started playing songs in my classes at Fordham. And then my students said, God, thank you, Dr. Nason, but have you heard this? And they started also educating me. So through the 90s, from the teams I coached and my students at Fordham, I got an education in hip-hop that made a profound effect on how I taught. And by, you know, the beginning of the 2000s, I said, I know enough so I can teach a course on it, which the first part, the rise of rock and roll, and the second part, the rise of hip-hop. And then, you know, I end up becoming, I hate to say it, known as sort of a hip-hop scholar. Now, at the same time as I'm doing this, my evolution towards appreciating hip-hop's voice as the kind of soundtrack of young people growing up in inner-city communities, I get an opportunity to start an oral history project dealing with the African-American experience in the Bronx. I'm asked by an archivist at the local historical society. They say we have a lot of inquiries from churches and schools. We need material about African-American history in the Bronx. We don't have any. Can you help us get some? So by this time, my kids were almost entirely through school. I had a little bit of time. I wrote this book about my life called White Boy, a memoir, and I had finished the book tour. So I said, let me look into it. And what I found was unbelievable. There were a half million people of African descent in the Bronx, no books about them, no dissertations, neglected, no footprint in the print media. So I decided to start an oral history project, you know, and I started interviewing some people I know, and before I knew it, their friends were contacting me, and this just absolutely took off. And it kind of took over my life because the community wanted to tell stories that had never been told before about how black people moved to the Bronx in the 30s and 40s out of Harlem as a place to find better schools, better housing, better opportunities. And there were these amazing multiracial neighborhoods in the Bronx in the 40s and 50s, which created more varieties of popular music than almost any place in the world. You had bebop jazz. You had gospel, you had uh, Afro-Cuban music, doo-wop, uh, all taking place and all being nurtured in the local schools, as well as a whole array of clubs and theaters. So I started writing about this, and then I started getting invited to schools to talk about it because teachers and principals said, this is something that can make you proud of living in the Bronx. So I started going into schools, first to train teachers how to do community oral history projects, and then they had wanted me to talk directly to the students. And the students were incredibly skeptical at first. Who's this old white guy talking about history? But when I started rapping to Grandmaster Flash's The Message, they thought it was hilarious. Broken glass everywhere, people 
people pissing in the stairs, you know I don't care. I can't take the smell. I can't take the noise. Got the money to move out, you know I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with a baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far, because a man in the topher group possessed my car. Don't push me, because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to loot you, so... So they started calling me Notorious Ph.D. So I got this sort of hip-hop name, and then I started writing humorous raps. So now here I am as this sort of hip-hop scholar, this theatrical old white guy rapper. So that added to the whole texture, uh, because I was also, you know, in probably 20 different Bronx schools doing community history projects. That's the short story of how I became involved in hip-hop. It all started with the kids I coached insisting I really listen to the music. Right, and I find it interesting how hip-hop just pretty much took what the singers and activists were doing in the 60s, like your old Woody Guthrie's, Joan Baez, Bob uh-huh. Dylan, Last Poets, Jill Scott Harris, and putting a beat on it, and your sentiment about not liking the music because it wasn't of your era reminded me of how Don Cornelius felt once hip-hop started to explode on Soul Train, where he was very hesitant on booking rap acts because it wasn't his generation, but it was what the kids who were dancing on the show at the time liked. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Look, my black colleagues had no use for hip-hop. Not one. I'm teaching in a black studies department, and no one in it had the slightest idea that what was happening in the streets of the Bronx in the 70s was going to change the history of the world. We didn't get it because we were listening to Frankie Beverly. We were listening to the Pointer Sisters, you know. We grew up on harmonic music along with powerful beats. So, sonically, hip-hop didn't work with my generation of African-American scholars and professionals either. But, you know, if you're in a position like Don Cornelius, if I'm coaching, you can't just tell kids to shut up that their music is not appropriate. You cannot do that and keep any kind of credibility. So, you start opening your, uh, your doors, and soon the music opens your eyes. And that's what the music power of it, the power of the narratives in those songs from the 90s. I think of Biggie's song, Things Done Changed, where he explains how crack changed everything in neighborhoods that were once harmonious, you know, and that's a brilliant historical narrative that Biggie does. Biggie is one of the greatest historians we have, or Ten Crack Commandments. These are songs which people are going to listen to 200 years from now to try to understand how crack upended so many communities around the country. Nas is Illmatic is also that does that. You know, this is genius. Definitely genius. And to think that it was taken from nothing and it turned into being the most popular musical genre in the world because when I was looking at documentaries like Wild Style and Style Wars and just seeing how New York was during the late 70s, early 80s, buildings were bombed out, funding for the arts programs and schools have been cut. And yeah, they cut kids all the music were, programs in the schools. Yeah. Yeah, so kids were left with nothing to do. Yeah, and they took, they were written off by everybody, and they created something. They didn't have the music programs, or they didn't have the choruses, they didn't have the theater, and they took two turntables and a mic and created something which would sweep the world because what was happening in the Bronx was eventually going to go around the world. It was deindustrialization. You know, the factories leaving, the good jobs going away, and people being unable to pay the rent, 
buildings being abandoned, buildings being torched. You know, this would spread around the country. I saw it in Buffalo. I saw it in Youngstown, Ohio. I saw it in Philadelphia, you know, in Detroit. And you can see it in parts of Europe, in England, in Glasgow, or in Berlin. These young people produced something which was going to give a voice to, you know, millions, tens of millions of people around the world who were written off. And it was not just, you know, the music. It was also the dance. It was also the graffiti art. It was the fashion. So many different elements. And all of these spread. And what happened to me is... People in Germany heard about the research I was doing in the Bronx and invited me to come to Berlin to see what hip-hop had become in this German city with a huge Turkish immigrant population, which had adopted hip-hop of its own. You know, I was invited to community centers in Berlin where, you know, they were teaching breakdancing, where the walls were covered with graffiti, where they had MC contests in five different languages and where hip-hop was loved and nurtured as much as anywhere if not more than in New York and this is like 2006 2007 and we created a program called the Bronx Berlin Youth Exchange to bring young people involved in hip-hop in Berlin together with their counterparts in New York so it's a universal global language and you can have kids rapping in languages they don't understand in a literal sense, but they'll get the feeling that is coming across with what the MC is saying. It's remarkable. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier how the ugly mobile African Americans didn't have a strong care for rap. And I look at it as you all were a part of the generation that grew up on Motown, that yep. musicianship. So once it became sparse and technology driven with rap, and then later on with Teddy Riley with fusion with New Jack Swing, it was like a punch in the face because you're like, where's the strings? Where's the piano? How come it's just all snares and uh, a triple looped up drum beat. You're absolutely right. And it's so interesting that some people say that one of the things that did the most to spread the rise of hip-hop was when we had the blackout in New York City in 1977. There were all these electronic stores in the Bronx that were looted. And so sound systems became widely distributed, you know, during that event. There was massive. Every business district in the Bronx was hit hard in that 1977 blackout. It's just so amazing. And the other thing is that kids in the Bronx negotiated a gang truce in the early 70s that allowed people to move freely from neighborhood to neighborhood, which you couldn't do in the late 60s, early 70s because of gangs. So that also allowed this sort of culture of creativity to flourish underground in ways that I think we're only recently beginning to understand. Yeah, so it reminds me of my wife's favorite movie, The Warriors, where they had to go all the way back to Coney Island but had to face every gang in whatever territory they reached. Yeah, a great documentary called Rubble Kings, which talks about the actual gang truce that was negotiated by a guy named Benji Melendez of a gang called the Ghetto Brothers. So you should check that out because that's the, the oh, yeah. story on which The Warriors was based. Oh, yeah. I've seen that documentary. I've seen Fresh Dress. I've mm -hmm. seen a lot of the documentaries about the early stages of hip-hop and everything. And just thinking how it was amazing how because of the blackout, a lot of the future DJs, the MCs, probably raided their local electronic store, Radio Shack, Crazy Eddie's, or whatever, <laughs> to get studio equipment. 
so they can go insane in those yeah. car jams. Yeah, absolutely. We've been exposed to all these things that I try to introduce to my students, you know, all these documentaries and this whole narrative. So um, Yeah, I'm a kid of the 90s, so I grew up with this stuff. I remember when Ready to Die first came out. I remember when Tupacalypse Now came out, Illmatic, Reasonable mm. Doubts, and Enter the Woo, the 36 Chambers, and just to see that I was able to witness all of these milestones in hip-hop's golden error just makes me more appreciative of being alive to see it and then being able to see younger generations be able to look at Wu-Tang series on Hulu or go back and listen to earlier albums from MC Light, Special Ed, Salt and Pepper and just understand and appreciate what they were doing. Yeah, no, I think that's a great time for a person to grow up as a hip-hop head because you know, that's the foundation of so much of the best work that's being done today. It's amazing. Yeah, because yeah, I remember growing up in North Carolina, everything pretty much came late down here, and mm -hmm. a lot of people from that part of the country had relatives down south. So when they right. were bringing their Kid Capri, Who Kid mixtapes down here, we thought we were exclusive because we didn't really hear that unless somebody came down here to bring it. And I find it funny that when a lot of kids would say, man, and they're going down south. They look at it like doing a prison bid. Uh -huh. Like, man, they're going down south for the summer. Uh huh. Well, let me tell you, this is fascinating because one of the things that, you know, the a lot of the African-American migrants from Harlem to the South Bronx in the 40s and 50s and 60s who were my age started moving back down south, you know, in the 90s. You know, a lot of the people who I interviewed in my research project, have, you know, moved to Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina. And one of the things I didn't realize is they keep bringing hip-hop with them. Their grandchildren or children are going with them. So that's an interesting story to write about, is the New Yorkers moving south and taking hip-hop with them. Yeah, because I'm in the middle of reading Dapper Dance autobiography and he was talking about his father who grew up in a town in, in Virginia which is about 10-15 minutes from where I live and how he migrated up to New York and pretty much made himself better and then Dapper Dan was able to take that and be able to launch what he launched. Now looking at Public Enemy, what do you think about the impact that acts like them Airbnb, Rakim, Brand Nubian, S Clan, and everybody that was either given philosophy from the nation or five percenters and their impact on black positivity in hip hop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was huge. In New York, it was the five percent nation nation of gods and earths had a lot of influence in giving a political black nationalist conscious thrust to, into hip hop that did spread. And it's also fascinating now to see with this, you know, resurgent Black Lives Matter movement, what role will hip-hop play in this over the, the next year or so? Will there be a, a soundtrack to help carry this forward? Because one of the things, going back to the 60s, our whole movement was to a soundtrack. You mentioned Gil Scott Heron, The Last Poets, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, The Temptations, War, What Is It Good For, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, Stevie Wonder, you know, all the anti-war songs by Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix, 
you know, with a star-spangled banner at Woodstock. So, you know, we'll see what goes on in this time in terms of music. And you say Beyonce just dropped a single. Yeah, she did, Black Parade. As soon as I get off this, I'm going to go listen to that. Yeah, because I find it interesting how I didn't really know about Juneteenth until I moved out here to New Mexico because prior to all the other states recognizing and making the state holiday, it was a state holiday in Texas and certain states observed it as a holiday but didn't really put it into practice. So I find it great now that a lot more of a wider audience are getting aware to Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. My granddaughter had a Juneteenth barbecue. We had a first family barbecue. She's biracial and, uh, you know, now become a leader in the Black Lives Matter movement at her high school. So we had a Juneteenth barbecue out here, and it's going to become a family tradition. Yeah. Great. So what was your thoughts on hip-hop is blowing up, exploding in the late 80s, early 90s, and then West Coast comes in, N.W.A., Strada Compton, Bleak the Police, Dr. Dre, The Chronic, 92, Doggy Style by Snoop the following year in 93. So what was your thought as a New Yorker when what West Coast, especially Death Row and then Tupac was doing, coming in and bringing their aesthetic to the hip-hop culture? Well, you mentioned their aesthetic. It was more musical. It was funkier and more danceable than the music being created in New York in the 90s. You know, you didn't dance to Biggie, you know. It was a whole different vibe. But Dr. Dre, you know, brought that musicality and his sampling was just, and I didn't even think of it that way at the time because, again, I was very unsophisticated about hip-hop. But, you know, I found that Tupac was, you know, because of the beats, you remembered his lyrics. So I was not in the middle of any of the feuds. And I didn't even have a East Coast orientation or loyalty at that time because it was all still very new to me, you know. So I would take each artist as it would come, as my players or my students would expose me to it. But Tupac made a huge impression on me of all those, the artists, and in part because he had a background as a political activist, but also because there was a certain vulnerability that Tupac allowed himself to project in his music that I appreciate. You know, as somebody who was there when the women's liberation movement emerged, I felt that a lot of the great hip-hop, you had this facade of masculine formidability that was very hard to break. And Tupac had a more complicated identity than some of the other artists, and ones that I think touched a chord with a lot of people. It's interesting, the person I compared to, Tupac, most to is Bob Marley. That, you know, you go around the world and Bob Marley is revered almost as a Christ-like figure, a sacrificial figure who's spoke for the disfranchised around the world. And of all of the great hip-hop artists of the 90s, Tupac is the only one with that reputation. When you go to Berlin, there are actually stores named after Tupac. That's the artist who's worshipped in Europe. I mean, obviously, people respect Biggie, respect Nas, respect Jay-Z, but they don't revere those artists the way they do Tupac, who they see as somebody who almost who expressed the angst and pain of suffering people um, Mm -hmm. because he let himself suffer in his music the way Bob Marley did. You heard the suffering. It's hard to to hear the suffering. Biggie is describing the suffering, but you don't sense he's feeling it because he has to be hard, you know. And I understand that. 
But of all those artists, the one who made the biggest impression on me over time was Tupac, even though I don't necessarily think he's the greater rapper than, let's say, Biggie or Nas or Jay-Z, who in some ways are better storytellers than he is. But Tupac mm-hmm. captures your heart. That's the way I see it, effectively. Yeah, I look at Tupac as that way, too. Tupac, he had two sides. He was of the people in the streets, and he could also relate to those who are involved in the movement. His mother... Mm-hmm. The late Afeni Shakur, born in Lumberton, North Carolina, part of wow. the Black Panthers. And yeah, and also Benjamin Crump, the attorney down in Florida, was also born and raised in Lumberton for a bit as well. Now, the one thing that I found interesting during that time period when the whole East Coast, West Coast feud was going on was that the South was neutral and outcast and the winning the best new artists at the Source Awards for Southern Player List at Cadillac Music and Nigel 2000 went up on stage and said the South got something to say and it was so surprising I'm sure to hip hop purists to see now how the South is pretty much taking over when back at that time everybody had their impact on how they felt Southern rappers were just Luke Miami based didn't really have a lot of lyrical content like MCs on the West Coast or right. New York I'm probably less immersed in Southern hip-hop than I was in the other two, but it's definitely Outkast and then Lil Wayne and everything that came out of New Orleans and Atlanta, Houston, Ghetto Boys and... Uh, yeah, Ghetto Boys, DJ Screw. Mm-hmm. The, the, the endless complexity of this and the window it shows into race in the United States and... Because the other thing is, while all this is going on, it's in the midst of mass incarceration. You know, the golden age of hip-hop, if if you would say, the 90s is the time when mass incarceration accelerates the most. And you go from having 330,000 people in prison in the U.S. to uh, over 2 million in 2000. And so... Who's going to tell those stories? They weren't told. I mean, in other words, you had hip-hop artists who were, you know, narrating the, the imprisonment well before Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. You know, Dead Prez is a great example. That The song Beyond and Enemy Lines. Uh, there was a whole uh, album put on in, in New York called No More Prisons and Brand Nubian making, thinking I'm a criminal or, you know. So there's a lot of stories about hip hop as prophetic that still need to be told. And I definitely feel that the impact of the women in hip hop should not go oh, ignore wow. the impact of MC Light, Queen Latifah, Salt and Pepper, Pebbly Poo, the real Roxanne, Shadi from Funky Four Plus One More, Roxanne Shante, the mm-hmm. women have played a big part in hip hop and their stories need to be told. Yeah, well Missy Elliott and Lauren Hill are at oh, you know are the pinnacle. There's nobody better than, to me, as lyricists than the two of them, you know. Lauren Hill is the closest thing we have to a revered figure in hip-hop. You know, she is almost like has the status of Tupac as a moral symbol for people around the world because, you know, of her fears uncompromising dignity as a black person and as a woman and as an immigrant. So, and Missy Elliott's just, you know, she's, you know, as a producer, her videos are incredible and her lyrics and also her embodying a, insisting that somebody who looks like her can be sexual, can be feminine, can be powerful and can't be controlled by anybody's 
you know, stereotypes. And now, of course, there's so many amazing women artists coming to the fore, and uh, Beyonce's connection to that discourse gives her a special power, too. Even though, I don't know if you would classify her as hip-hop, but in some way she is. She's just created a whole new genre of music in which hip-hop is one of the formative streams. And right. she may be and the I'll, most influential musician in the world right now. Right, and I will also be remiss if I didn't put Little Kim in that conversation as well. Little Kim is fascinating to me because, again, she has staying power. And also, she has, you know, a, both a, a lyrical and a musical gift that everything she does makes you want to move as well as think. And, yeah, absolutely right. You couldn't imagine, you know, Cardi B or Nicki Minaj without Lil' Kim setting the stage, even though everybody feuds with everybody else. Right, and you were mentioned Missy Elliott, and every time when I see Lizzo perform or see her videos, to me, yeah. it's a direct homage to Missy. And Missy is in one of her videos. Yeah, is one of them. I love Lizzo. There are so many different great women performers out there now. It's an exciting time because here's the thing. Women are the driving force, the young women, but behind a lot of these Black Lives Matter protests around the country and around the world. And so it's very interesting to see what is going to be the musical soundtrack to this amazing movement? Because I don't think this movement is going away. No, no. And I think the difference between the movement back in the 60s and now is that you have a younger generation of kids who are born and raised on the Internet and social media. They're going to use their mind as well as their camera, computers, mm -hmm. tablets or whatever to put the message out there and you get to communicate in real time. And you're going to be able to pressure these corporations to say, hey, enough is enough. We're we're not going to live like our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents did. We want something better, and we're going to demand it now. Yeah, absolutely. And the cell phones is the civil rights movement's greatest weapon. Film them and fire them. Yeah, because there's been people getting called out left and right on Facebook, jobs getting lost, everything's getting turned upside down. And me being a 34-year-old African-American male from North Carolina, I thought I would never live to see the day when NASCAR says you cannot have the Confederate flag at our event. That's absolutely mind-blowing. The response of Roger Goodell to all those great players saying you have to apologize for how you handled the first Black Lives Matter protest. And then he comes out with this incredible statement where he actually seemed to be sincere. It's an amazing thing. The NASCAR, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, like I said, I'm from North Carolina, so NASCAR is heavy in that part of the country, and you can go to a race before they had this ban and see Confederate flags popping up everywhere, and then just recently in Raleigh, two Confederate statues came down, and one of them was hanging on a light pole to symbolize lynching. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just ask you a few more questions, then I'll get you on out of here. So I want to get your take on disco was intersecting with hip-hop at the time, and a lot of people were saying, EDM did this. I'm like, no, it started with disco at venues like Studio 54, Paradise Garage, so on and so forth. So how do you think about the intersection of disco and then EDM taking what disco and house started to another level? Well, you know, I was actually actually not that immersed in disco at the time. I listened to it, I liked it, but you know, when people talk about hip hop and disco, there were a couple of things that operated. Disco, even though it was dance music, kept the melodic line 
foremost because the disco DJs fused an entire record into another record. They also had dress codes at the discos in terms of how you had a look to enter them, especially at the discos in Manhattan. And the difference with hip-hop was that hip-hop broke with the melodic elements in in disco because you had kids who were living in a world where there was no more melody. The music program shut down, and literally, the way Grandmaster Flash described it, broken glass everywhere. The DJs who created hip-hop were imitating the disco DJs, you know, with the two turntables and the mixers, but they responded to what young people in communities which were being, you know, marginalized, burned, redlined, and stripped of resources to what those kids wanted to hear. And they didn't respond as much to the melodic. They responded to the percussive and to pure percussion. You had percussion and melody in disco. And hip-hop was, you know, in the Bronx, was pure percussion, which then allowed you to do poetry over it. You couldn't have poetry over it except in the mixing part of it, because people wanted the melody. But in the Bronx, where what you wanted was the percussion, that was the element which made people move and dance, then you could have poetry over it. And you could also add stuff like scratching and beatboxing, which are other ways of creating percussion, which would not have gone over in disco. So I think you can overrate the relationship between disco and hip-hop. Disco never generated poetry. The way hip-hop was created in the Bronx, it left room for poetry, and it left room for other forms of percussion. So I think that hip-hop is more unique than some people suggest. Right, because disco, it was all about that four on the floor. Now, last question, I'm going to get you out of here. Your thoughts on Chappelle's special that was released last week, 846? Whoa. That was a warning to these white supremacists. Some are on the police forces and some are civilians who think they can terrorize black folk and other people who are fighting for justice. To me, it's saying, you ain't the toughest people in this country and you're not the only one with guns. You all better be careful what you unleash here because you ain't going to win. Now, I can't believe he said that. I would like to say that, but if I did so, I would lose my job. <laughs> but am I thinking that? Hell yeah. So I thought that was an incredibly bold and powerful statement about what's going on in this country and that black folk are not going to roll back anything. They're moving forward, and if you get out of line, you're going down hard. So that's how I interpreted it. Something that yeah, I felt needed saying, but I couldn't say. Yeah, and like I was telling you in our previous conversation, how I feel that Chappelle is like our modern-day prior Gregory Carlin yeah. telling the truth. That was some bold shit. <laughs> and he had 21 million views listening to somebody saying, white people ain't the only people with guns in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the old saying, it ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. Uh-huh. And you come from North Carolina, so you know that it's not only white people who have guns. Yes, sir. So I know they're all good and well. So do you have any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude this interview? Well, I want to give a shout-out to the Bronx 
because that's where it all started. But Rabanz also, even today, is creating all this amazing music by fusing different cultures, you know, because now, back when, you know, hip-hop was created, it was predominantly West Indian, African-American, and Puerto Rican. Now, the new groups are Dominican, West African, Mexican, and South Asian. And each of those communities have amazing musical traditions, and they're going to all fuse and reinvigorate hip-hop. You already see it with people like Cardi B, but it's just the beginning. They're going to be African MCs, they're going to be South Asian and Mexican MCs, so i got to be loyal to the hood of the Bronx. Brooklyn is so right. gentrified, I don't know if any can hip-hop can come out of there anymore. But the Bronx, watch out. Right, and the quote bugging out, bleep word, gentrification. So, if people want to get a hold of you on social media, how can they do so? Well, I'm on MC Fire Dog on Twitter, Badass Papa Mark on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook as Mark Nason. But I have 5,000 friends, so if you want to friend me, I have to get rid of somebody inactive. But send me a friend request, and I'll try to do that. All right, and Dr. Nason, I definitely got to have you on for a part two so that we can discuss more. And I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to do this interview with me. This was great, and send me the link to it when you have it. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Dr. Martin Nason, professor at Florida University on Beyond the Album Cover, yours truly. Thank you once again, Dr. Nason. Thank you, Jarrell. This was great. Thank you so much.